The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Germany's former president, Roman Herzog, famously praised Bavaria for its symbiosis between laptop and lederhose. In Munich, these symbols for modernity and tradition are both flourishing. Willkommen in München. Over the next three days, the Monocle team has descended into the Bavarian city for our Quality of Life conference. So we wanted to take this opportunity to put Munich under the spotlight and show you why we chose this city for our annual gathering. We'll profile an initiative transforming disused and neglected spaces into pop-up hotels and concert venues, hear about pedestrianisation efforts in Munich's streets, and our correspondent gives us the lowdown on what makes this city tick. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Germany's former president, Roman Herzog, famously praised Bavaria for its symbiosis between laptop and lederhose. In Munich, Bavaria's capital, these symbols for modernity and tradition are both flourishing. The alpine leather shorts, often worn for alcohol-infused revelry, returned last year as festivities like Oktoberfest reopened after two years of Covid-related restrictions. Munich's tech credentials, captured in its designation Isar Valley, also thrive. Its mix of first-class universities, visionary investors and local champions such as Siemens, Infineon or BMW is now supplemented by expanding US tech titans. In step with Amazon, IBM, Microsoft and Google, Apple is now boosting its presence with an investment of 1 billion euros. Though critics warn of gentrification, it will bring jobs, know-how and new charging stations. Mobility more generally benefits from the launch of a dedicated municipal department, which was founded in 2021. It built new cycle tracks, pedestrian zones and the first meters of long-planned bike highways. These lanes are three meter wide and will eventually connect different suburbs to the city center. Planners are further emboldened by successful experiments during lockdowns, such as transforming car lanes into cycle lanes and parking spaces into restaurant terraces. So the city empowered civil society groups to reduce traffic in selected streets and squares, set up trees on parking lots and a mini superblock, a traffic reduced area pioneered by Barcelona. Such measures have helped raise the number of bike trips counted at monitoring stations by 70% over 10 years and cut nitrogen dioxide levels by about 30% over 5 years. 
but they remain controversial. Currently, the most hotly debated example is Kolumbusstraße, a central street where social scientists from MCube, Munich's federally funded mobility cluster under the roof of Munich's Technical University, are conducting an experiment. They temporarily closed part of the 300-meter street for traffic and abolished 41 parking lots to lay sod, put up raised bed gardens, benches and a large sandbox. Critics and supporters of the five months experiment are both so adamant that the city is eagerly awaiting the scientists' results concerning associated changes in noise, heat and neighbors' sentiments. Munich's brightest experiment is the interim use of vacant buildings. It is often spearheaded by creatives around three social entrepreneurs, Gregor Wölche, Lise Kieser and Michi Kern. Having previously turned a bank into a pop-up hotel and a disused factory into a sports come culture hotspot, the trio is now reviving another titan, the 70-year-old department store Kaufhof am Stachus, which will soon open as Lovecraft. It will host concerts, parties, bars, artworks and much more. A typical Munich mix of tradition and modernity. Yannick Schmidt, Monocle's Munich correspondent there, with an explainer on what is making his city tick. Joining me down the line now is Ben Buchsein. Ben is a professor of urban design at the Technical University of Munich, where he works in M-Cube, the mobility cluster we just heard about. Ben is working on a pedestrianisation experiment on the streets of Munich that will hopefully provide information and motivation for the city to roll out these sorts of projects in the future. But it has not been without some controversy. Ben, thank you for joining us. Now, perhaps, first of all, you can tell us a little bit about M-Cube and the work that you're doing there. M-Cube is a big project. It's a project funded by the German government. It's one of seven excellence clusters which have very different characteristics. And this M-Cube is concerned with the transformation of transportation in metropolitan areas and is centering on Munich. And we got this as a university together with the city of Munich and many private partners also, because the idea is that these clusters for future that they transport stuff directly into reality. So we are supposed to get startups uh, into the boat, etc., etc. We came with the idea that we want to make Munich as a metropolitan region to look into in terms of the traffic of the future or the transportation of the future. And this sparked a lot of different projects ranging from automated shuttles to the question of mobility budget scenarios, et cetera, et cetera, up to car sharing, new car sharing schemes. And of course, the AQT project, which is one of the three lighthouse projects in this whole MCube cluster. But it's only one of many, but it's probably in media, it's the most visible one. We wanted to talk to you about this project. This is Columbusstrasse. And it's a real-life experiment to see what happens when you you change a piece of city infrastructure. You temporarily close 300 metres of the road for traffic, you took out the parking lots, you put up benches, and then you try to measure the responses and the, the benefits and perhaps some of the losses as well for the city. Could you just tell us about what you did and, and how it was monitored? Sure. Actually, it's two areas which we are working on, two quarters in Munich. And the most attention gets the Columbus Trasse, actually. Uh, we chose them out of scientific principles, so we didn't just choose them like that, but there were certain characteristics we looked at that they would be representative and that the research we make, because this is research, this is not 
like a city project or something, but it's research that we have the best results. Uh, we talked to the people in these quarters beforehand a lot. We also got the political backing because in Munich, the Bezirksausschuss is very strong. It's the local municipal body, which you always have to talk to. They were very much in favor of this project. We threw in 8,000 letters into the uh, letterboxes of the inhabitants and there was also some co-creation in the beginning as much as we could do because the city is also a partner they in, in the end have to approve uh, what we are doing but in the end we just took a exemplary street which was in our opinion very good to test these things where it was also possible in terms of the traffic regime of the city and we introduced a section of it where we just put out lawn basically and then also a section where we put out a big sandbox which is causing some controversy but also some pleasing some people also we put in some car sharing concepts and some bike sharing etc etc so there's a lot of things we are trying out in the street in this big in vivo experiment all the time monitoring it, asking the inhabitants uh, what items they use, what items they don't use, what they like, what they don't like. We were also monitored after it is being demolished, let's say, in October. So it will not be there forever, but it will be put away in October again. And then we will ask them in November what they liked and what they didn't like, or to test the acceptance of such measures in inner city areas. This is in accordance with the... Uh, City of Munich's strategy, they have made one of these big strategic plans for 2040. And there, this quarter is already marked as being not entirely without cars, but with much less cars than today. So we basically thought, let's test out how this could look. What we're seeing in many cities is that despite these what seem to be consultation periods, the decision is, is kind of made at a top level that you we have this here in London, that we are bringing in an ultra-low emission zone it doesn't matter in the end whether you don't like it because we believe it is correct. And I wonder whether you felt this was a consultation process or this was just more understanding where people had concerns so that policy could change and adapt to maybe encourage more of these people to be accepting in the future. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I see it as a preparation for a consultation process, although I don't know how such a consultation process could realistically be implemented with the number of streets which we have to transform. So I think we have to, in the end, do some policy recommendations how to implement this in a way that is also feasible for a city, because the, I think that's a factor that you see what we did in the street now. You can never do on the scale of a whole quarter or even a city, because it's much too many resources that go into it. However, there's two levels, and I think the level of reducing car dependency or the cars in the street that was also questioned by some people but already now the majority of the people who live there don't have a car so for them it's not such a big impact the other thing and i think that's where the results will be important is what do you do with the space that you free from the cars i think one of the things that has to be done which is a fact is the streets will get uh, much hotter so we need to introduce these cooling measures and the streets will need to be much greener so that's also why we tried out the lawn but what do you do on the screen or what you don't do on the green i think that is something that we get from this experiment how do you connect the green to the ground floor of let's say non-commercial dwellings because i think that's something we underestimated to be honest that there are some people living 
on the ground floor, maybe even in a single room apartment, uh, looking out on this transformed streetscape, not being able to escape it and being used to cars parking there for decades. So I think there is going to be a transformation. That's not the question, but we would hopefully give them some ideas how to get this transformation on the ground and what kind of new street profiles to introduce. And tell me, you said there had been some controversy, some pushback from certain people. What kinds of things have people been less sure about? Yeah, that's an interesting factor because there's a small group of people who have enormous media presence. Also, people I know and who are working in Munich since many decades say they haven't experienced anything like it. So they're really playing the media and the media is playing along. They like conflict because conflict gives clicks. So I'm not saying they should not have a voice, but the voice is very loud. On the other hand, that gives the project a lot of visibility. Yeah? So I don't know, in the end, maybe it's very good for our research that this group is uh, so active because otherwise we would not have the coverage in the German mainstream media like we have now, where the people give all kinds of positive reactions then on the project and say, hey, come on, what are you guys complaining about, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting. Huh? It's, it's good that you see the positive side of it. And tell me, at the end of this process, you then go away and you create a report or what do you hope will be the outcome of the work that you're doing? Okay, so the M-Cube project as a whole is supposed to be three phases. So we are now ending the first phase in November 24. And then we have to apply for the second phase where we should show how these kind of results should be scalable. So that's what we are thinking about now in the group, how to scale up this AQT project, how to learn from all the things that we are experiencing now and what kind of suggestions to give the city of Munich what to do next. We hope we still have the political backing because you also have to see that our project goes smack into the middle of an election period in the city of Munich or the Bavarian government. So everything is being heated up quite strongly and the political parties are also sometimes overreacting to the whole thing because they are afraid of missing something out. But yeah, it's not going to stop. We are going to try to understand how to scale things up, how to learn for other quarters. We are also trying to inform other cities to also make conferences with other cities, how to implement these measures more broadly. And Ben, finally, just tell me, maybe as a researcher, as a, an academic, but also as somebody who understands the city, in every city we seem to be looking at at the moment, there's this very divisive separation between people who are it's almost on political lines that the car is seen as a symbol of the right, the bicycle is a, a symbol of the left, and, and people are taking more and more defensive positions. Do you hope that the kind of work you're doing, where you come up with some proper numbers and feedback and you map a community's response, there could be found in the middle a position where everybody comes together and sees urban change as positive for everybody? I do hope so. It also worries me a little bit what I observe. Also what I said, how the media plays along and does not really add to the conflict being resolved. On the other hand, I'm very happy about the discussions we're leading. And also I must say that if you talk to the people on the ground and also the political parties on the ground, it's a very heated arguments, but there's still arguments being exchanged. So the society is still in discussion about how this whole thing has to or could take place. And as long as that is happening, I'm still optimistic that we will come to a resolve. I'm also 
optimistic or hoping that a few heat summers will show people that something needs to be changed about the ways our cities work. So I don't know if any facts or results or study results or academic papers will really convince people that are opposed to these things because if you look at the way they argue it's quite irrational in a way so i think it's more about emotions it's more about fear of change and it's maybe also about something that the city at the moment signifies for them which they don't want to change sometimes i have the feeling that they don't like anonymity to be lessened and people move to the city to be anonymous not to have too much contact with their fellow people and it's a positive aspect of a city and sometimes i think that's also a psychological aspect that stands behind the whole controversy because there's a lot of people saying hey this is great for the first time i get to know my neighbors i chat with them on the street we exchange over these urban gardening stuff which is by the way working fantastically so the inhabitants could apply to have one of these gardening things hochbeete and that's really working well as a you know meeting old and young etc cetera, etc cetera. and sometimes i have the feeling that these people want to stay anonymous and they want to stay away from other people and i don't judge it huh? because it's also a positive property of the city is that it's anonymous so I think these aspects have to be looked in more closely, where to make spaces of gathering and where not to make these spaces of gathering. And I think we can also gain acceptance from the people that are opposed to it at the moment. Ben Buchsein, thank you for joining us here on The Urbanist. We also heard earlier about the urban revitalization projects popping up in Munich many of which have been led by three particularly active social entrepreneurs. Gregor Wojtje is one of this group who is working with his partners to transform disused and neglected spaces in Munich into community assets, such as pop-up hotels, recreation centres and an upcoming concert and exhibition space too. Gregor joined Monocle's David Stevens recently to talk about his projects and David began by asking Gregor about his background and how it led him to work as he is doing now. I have been educated as an architect, have never worked as an architect though, but started a communication company, did advertising communications for many years, sold that company and completely focused my life onto sustainability issues, founded a platform in Germany called utopia.de, which is the biggest sustainable consumption platform in Germany in the internet advised and worked with companies on their sustainability issues. And then 10 years later, 15 years later, I met an old friend of mine, Michi Kahn, who is also my partner in most of these ventures now, and started repurposing conversion buildings into happening places, thus bringing together basically everything that I've learned in my life, you know, being an architect, being able to read rooms and design rooms and work with rooms, at the same time, being able to communicate and think about ideas and communicative ways of dealing with them and thinking about sustainability issues, thinking about society, social issues, and bringing all these together in these projects under the name that is really happening. Yeah, and as you say there, this is kind of a culmination of your past work, your education, your background. Tell us a little bit about Lovelace Hotel. And actually, I'd never heard this before. So what exactly is a pop-up hotel? Well, a pop-up hotel is basically a hotel that is a temporary space. 
which is very unusual for hotels because the return on investment usually starts after five to 10 years. So if you only have 16 months, a very short period of time. It was the first of its kind, I think, worldwide. That's why it got a lot of recognition in these uh, years. It was the state bank. At that point of time, it was the headquarters of the Hypofine Fund, which is a big bank. And uh, basically, they only had their board in there. So it's 5,000 square meters for five board members and their conference rooms and entertaining rooms, whatever. So nobody really ever saw that thing, you know, unless you were like ultra high net worth individuals who came there and being hosted there and uh, being taken care of their money. But nobody else knew that place. So they wanted to turn it into a hotel. They had legal quarrels with neighbors and everything. And they came to us and said, look, this space is empty now. You know, what could we do with it for two years? And a lot of people came in and said, hey, let's do co-working here and use it as co-working space. And Michi and I we just went there and looked at it and said, hmm, it looks fantastic. Let's do a hotel. Two weeks later, we signed the contract, having no idea as to how to do that. We created 26 rooms. I mean, the rooms were not that much of a problem. The bathrooms were a real problem because it only had like two or three bathrooms. So each room needed its own bathroom. Uh, we needed to put in a new fire alarm system, all sorts of things. And we did it with private money. This money that came from us, from friends, believers, we said, yeah, let's do that. It sounds like a funky idea. We did it with very little money, but with our money, which meant that we could be fast and fast in planning it, fast in building it and getting to start. So I think from the moment we signed the contract, the lease contract, to the moment we opened, it was like six or seven months. And another one of these transformative projects that you and your partners worked on is something called Sugar Mountain. Can you tell us about that one too? Well, Sugar Mountain is a concrete factory, one of the few really industrial sites in Munich. Munich is not a very industrial city, and this used to be a big concrete factory, not far from the city center, run down, completely derelict. And again, it's an investor who planned the whole you know, quarter around this area, a huge development project, and the factory was there, empty and vacated. And they offered it to us and said, hey, what can we do with this? until we start building the whole quarter around it. Again, we just, you know, we went there. At this point of time, I think the major difference to the Loveless Hotel was we really paid rent. We paid rent. We did not just pay the extra fees for heating and electricity. We paid real rent and a lot of it. That's the only project that we ever paid rent for because after that, we met with the investors and they said, well, actually, it was not really necessary to pay the rent. It was nice that we did it, but it was not really necessary because you raised the value of our property. So nowadays, when we look at these things, we don't pay rent. Actually, for the factory, we don't pay any rent. We just pay the extra fees. And we looked at it and said, hey, great, it's an indoor-outdoor space. It's a part of Munich that does not have a lot of possibilities. There are no sport clubs, no soccer pitches, nothing like that. So we started building that and combining the cultural content of that factory that now is used for shows, for stages, for theaters, for dance, for whatever. And then the outside, we turned into a social hub, really, for, you know, playing sports, ball sports. We have basketball courts, football. We have a pump track for bikes. We have, you can boulder there. You can play ping pong. So it's become a social attraction point. Most of the stuff is for free. No consumption necessary. You can go there and just play ball. 
there's a little kiosk that runs everything. There's one guy there. He gives you your ping pong paddles or, or he gives you a ball for the basketball things and you can buy you know, a slice of pizza or coffee or Coke there. But the day use is completely free. And only if there's event in the big hall and the location itself, then you have to pay entry fees and things like that. And that's also one of the things that we that we combine in all of these projects. We try to do very little commercial stuff, but high-end and very expensive. So we do a lot of sponsorships with big companies that love our spaces. And they can come and, and be there for a very short amount of time and use them and give us a lot of money for it. And with that money, we can enable thousands of other people to come there and experience that place and do not have to pay for anything. That's the kind of combination that makes it quite interesting. And that's maybe something that combines Sugar Mountain with the Lovelace. The Lovelace, yes, it was a hotel, and we had 120,000 guests and I don't know how many overnight stays there. But it was also an event space. We had 1,500 events in 16 months there. So everything from a board meeting with five CEOs to a birthday party to a fetish party with 5,000 people happened in that hotel. And that made it interesting, not just for the hotel guests, but for the people in Munich to come there and be there and socialize and meet and mingle and experience things they haven't experienced so far. That's where it connects with other places like Sugar Mountain or Utopia or Lovecraft now. It's places where things happen. That's why we call them happening places. I wonder with these spaces that when you approach them are often derelict, unused, maybe in a bit of disrepair, I wonder if that offers you a bit of a clean slate, a bit of a blank canvas to make sure that the use that comes after is the right use for the city or perhaps better engages with the community as it is now, especially older spaces, you know, post-industrial spaces like you mentioned. You alluded there to Lovecraft, your upcoming project. Can you tell us a little bit about that one and maybe how that idea of finding the right application for a space ties in? I think it's important to understand that whatever you call them, derelict, empty, vacated, in technical terms or in real estate terms, they're now called stranded assets. People don't need these enormous shopping malls, department stores, office buildings from the 80s. They're just not needed anymore. And there's a lot of them. And a lot of them are just standing there vacated, empty, waiting for the next usage and the next purpose. And I think the real trick behind it and idea behind it is to find that new purpose. And that new purpose in repurposing the place, the location, the new purpose for us needs to be self-sustaining. That's why it needs to be commercial in some area. And in others, it just needs to be social, open, cultural, and inviting to everybody. And that's the same story with Lovecraft, huge department store for almost 60 years, or more than 60 years, in the very heart of Munich. Everybody can get there. And it's, again, a building, you know, you know how department stores are. They have huge single floors and, you know, six or seven stacked onto each other and no walls in there, but not many windows as well. So you don't have a lot of light and you have to come up with something that plays with that kind of area. And we looked at every floor and tried to find usages for every floor that are different. So we have exhibitions, we have community areas, we have a skateboard area in there. In the basement, we have a very renowned art exhibition. We have an event space that you can rent and you can do parties in. So it's really stacking things on top of each other 
that give it a new purpose. And the purpose always has to do with a social function and a cultural function. And that's what's missing. That's what we're looking for in all of our projects. We think that the future of our urban society really lies in collaboration and co-creation. And the problems that we are facing right now, they can only be solved in community. And for this community, we need spaces. We need spaces that make it possible to experience, to think, to dream, to act together. And we need places that inspire us to a shared vision. And these spaces are missing. And that's what we're trying to accomplish. Gregor Wojtjej there in conversation with Monocle's David Stevens. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. You can also keep an ear on Monocle Radio in the coming days for more coverage from Munich as we hold our annual Quality of Life conference in the city. Today's show was produced by Carlton Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Munich's Coeo with Like It Is. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Yeah.